Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. According to Malcolm Gladwell, a tipping point is the moment of critical mass when an idea, trend, or behavior crosses over a threshold, tips, and spreads like wildfire. While the COVID-19 crisis itself is an example of such a phenomenon, so has been the almost instantaneous impact of the crisis on the digital transformation process of banking. Those organizations that have not already embraced the entirety of how to become a digital bank were caught flat-footed as brand stores were closed and customers were required to transact on digital channels. In many cases, new accounts could no longer be opened, loan applications could no longer be taken, and in many organizations, not being digitally transformed meant that you delivered bad customer experiences. We are fortunate to be joined again by one of the foremost authorities on the future of banking, Chris Skinner. Chris is a prolific blogger and best-selling author, and he has joined us today to discuss his newly released book, Doing Digital, Lessons from Leaders. In this book, Chris capsulizes interviews he did with several of the best digital banks in the world, providing a detailed guide for those institutions who are now playing catch-up. Welcome to the show, Chris. Interesting. On one hand, it feels like just yesterday that you were on the Bank and Transform podcast, but so much has happened since we talked in November. In fact, while the news is all on the health impact of COVID-19, it's clear that the fallout of shelter-at-home orders has impacted all industries, including banking. What are some of the most dramatic changes you've seen in the banking industry since the coronavirus pandemic spread across the world? I think the main thing I'm seeing is a dichotomy between traditional banks and some of the challenger banks. And within that, there's also some modularity, obviously, between the big banks and the small banks. In particular, by way of example, I deal with one of the big UK banks, sorry, two of the big UK banks. And right now, I can't get hold of anybody to talk to. We have a scheme a bit like the uh, payments scheme in the USA, PPP in the UK and the government put $500 billion behind it and a bank is just not processing um, because they get getting too many calls and there's no one there to take the calls. Last week, the figure was 130,000 small businesses asking for loans and only 983 applications processed. And the big banks just didn't have a disaster recovery plan for a physical meltdown, whereas the challenger banks did. And the smaller banks seem to have done as well. I've dealt with a few of the small community banks that are coping quite successfully with the crisis. And the digital banks, because they already had a structure of working remotely from home for a lot of their people, haven't found this too big a deal. It's the big banks that have, you know, central headquarters and offshore call centers that have just had a complete physical meltdown. Well, it's interesting because you, you mentioned the small business process. I This morning, I got an email from my bank that said, thank you very much for requesting some information on um, the PPP loans. And everything about the email was general in nature. I mean, they noticed the fact that I had requested something. They then said, oh, by the way, if you have not signed up for online banking, please do so because that's how we're going to communicate, which... It's strange seeing that I have online banking. It gave me three locations on their website to go to. And it said, don't forget that it's first come, first serve, which is interesting seeing that. I put my request in last Friday morning at eight o'clock in the morning. And despite going on social media and giving them a, a piece of my mind, 
they got back to me today, Thursday, at nine o'clock. So, you know, you're talking speed is important, yet your response to me took six days. And and it's interesting because what it shows also is the lack of the ability to utilize data for connecting with the customers or any proactivity at all by the bank. Now, I'm not a big business person. I'm probably not even going to qualify for the lending. However, not getting back to me is something I'll remember. I was telling somebody yesterday, you know, this is a customer experience issue. You're there when I'm depositing money. Where are you when I need money or when I need assistance or I need some help or something's not going well? And actually, for in the U.S., this is just the first shoe because in another two weeks, all the consumers are going to get their checks. And you're going to find a lot of banks that um, not only aren't ready for non-customers, which they're going to be getting, but what's going to be worse is if the customer gets a physical check in the mailbox and does what the bank wants them to do, which is mobile deposit capture, they will be most likely put into a 10-day hold process because of the policies within the bank that are not ready for a situation like this. And as you know, it will be a complete upheaval of the bank to change that policy. Yeah, and I mean, the American experience is very similar to what the British experience is going through and the European experience and that um, government's announcing all these policies to help people out and the money just is not getting to the people. To give you a couple more examples from my side, um, at least your bank got back to you. I spoke to mine over a week ago and still haven't heard back. And on a personal experience with one of the major card companies in the UK, just before the meltdown happened, I got locked out of my online access to the card statements, which I was given all the correct details as I verified with their contact center. It was on a Thursday about three weeks ago. And then um, I still couldn't get online. I'm trying to find out about getting refunds from airlines. And I went back on the Monday and their contact center shut down because it was in India. And India, with four hours notice, was locked down. So now I've got no access to the call center and no access to anybody online. Their chatbot wasn't working because there's no one there. And I've got some sympathy for them as big banks because, you know, the Royal Bank of Scotland out west said that they were getting 30,000 phone calls a day when they're normally geared up for 2,000. So on the one hand, they've got a massive increase in customer demand. And equally, they've got no one there to take it because everyone's staying at home in a lockdown. So I've got sympathy, but I think what this brings me to is post-pandemic, we're going to see a huge rush towards digitalization because none of these organizations had a digital backup to their physical operations. They've had disaster recovery plans for their technology for many years, but they didn't have a disaster recovery plan for when the offices shut down with 24 hours notice. And that, I think, is a huge learning experience that we're all going through. And it's not just in banking, but in every business. Well, you know, I refer to it as the willful blindness related to digital transformation prior to three or four weeks ago. It's amazing how quickly it happened. But now it feels more like the story of the emperor with no clothes, that many banks that had been unprepared for digital transformation or had faked it got caught. I mean, you're really caught in a, a situation where those who had put on the facade of digital prove immediately that they're not ready, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And you see some of the things that are going on with some of the small community banks. And so 
there's one of the community banks run by Jill Castilla, who immediately was communicating via social media that they were going to help their customers and don't worry, uh, which is really reassuring to see that message going out. And that was literally at the start of the emergency. It, it, you know, it wasn't halfway through or after government action. It was just proactive action by a banker. And I also saw with Chime, for example, that they're talking about getting the money, the $2,500 to customers as soon as they can without with no strings attached through, through the app. Now, I, admittedly, that's limited because they need government reassurance and backing to make that happen. But um, you know, the fact that you see those proactive actions are impressive. We had um, Monzo and Starling in the UK, for example, actually test running physical operations closing in February, which is over a month before there was any lockdown, and you know, actually building their physical disaster recovery plan proactively before the pandemic hit. And so I think it's interesting that we see you know, the small digital companies are used to people working from home acting very quickly, the big banks acting very slowly. And a lot of it's to do with big banks didn't trust their people working from home. You know, security and risk, they never actually planned for a situation like this. Well, it's interesting because I had a, a meeting with the sales force for a major mobile telecommunications company, but basically they also do a lot of consulting and financial institutions. They said they have just come out of their, their strongest quarter ever and they said it's not like a lot of organizations have asked for brand new initiatives. What they've done is everything that was unstuck became unstuck instantaneously because while it was on everybody, you know, we, we've talked about this before. Most organizations knew what they needed to do and even knew how to do it. But because of the prosperity that the banking world was having until three or four weeks ago, there was no incentive to pulling the trigger. And so what happens is I told the, the team, I said, I have many times said, I'm glad I'm no longer in the sales teams because in the sales team, you, you get these continuous, good, positive reinforcement, but nothing ever happened. Well, now they're just overwhelmed with all the things that people are asking for. You know, it's, it's not turning on brand new initiatives. It's actually doing the initiatives that have been on the priority list, but have never moved forward. Yeah, and as I said, I think come Q3, Q4, it's going to be interesting, particularly for you and I, for two reasons. One is the massive move towards implementation of digital that was stuck, exactly what you were discussing, you know, that now I think everyone recognizes this is far more important than they had realized before. But the second is that everything that was going to happen in Q2 is being postponed to Q3, four, and the assumption that the lockdown will be um, taken away and eased which actually means that we're going to be conferenced out in October because you're going to have all the spring conferences added to all the fall conferences all taking place together. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens when the doors open again. Well, and it's going to be interesting to see because it's one thing for the ability to do these things happening, but are people going to want to attend? You know, my willingness to get on a plane is going to be a lot quicker than my willingness to go to a let's say money 2020 when there's 10,000 people packed into a, a very small area. And all of a sudden you're saying, you know, I, I wouldn't mind a little bit more of these uh, executive committee meetings where I'm meeting just with a small group of people for a financial institution, because I'm not too sure where my willingness to jump back into what was the old norm. You know, when you look at what's happened over the last three weeks, four weeks, what has been the biggest gap between what is needed in this environment and where banks are today? Well, there's a whole range of things. I guess one is that they really should have robust internet operations to mobile apps and online. 
which some have, but some are failing dismally. As I say, I'm, I'm locked out of my card company right now online, and they don't even offer an app because they're so uh, last century. And uh, the second is that they really need to have flexible work operations where if overnight something is locked down, people can work from home. And there's been, particularly in financial institutions, a huge reluctance to do that. But I think this crisis will have brought it home to all of us that you can work from home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That you, you can connect. I mean, it's amazing me how many people are Skyping, Zooming, Google Hangouting, Microsoft Teaming and connecting. And I'm having many global conversations that are actually just as productive, if not more productive than when I go to networking meetings. And I think you're right that we'll all of us question, what were we doing before? Why were we traveling around so freely and so much? You know, I'm writing my blog every day and I know you keep up with a lot of it as I keep up with yours. And one of the things I wrote was Extinction Rebellion wins because basically the climate change focus has been trying to get attention. And this crisis has given them actually quite a gift because it's locked down the world, reset the world. Yep. And afterwards, I think a lot of us will say, well, maybe I shouldn't just take that flight to Las Vegas for a conference that I would willingly take before because I could do it over some you know, video connection instead. Well, it's interesting because you look at some of the, I mean, there's so many effects that we haven't even processed it. I mean, the stock market has, but you, you don't think about them. One of them is commercial real estate. I no longer need a 50-story building in the middle of Manhattan to house 7,000 employees when maybe only 2,500 of those really need to be in the building. And now, maybe I didn't trust everybody, but talk about a, a huge case study or a huge example of, okay, how did this happen? You've just released a new book entitled Doing Digital Lessons from Leaders. From that book and, and your writings, which, by the way, I, I'm sitting here on the desk with it right now, what separated the leaders from the laggards with regard to the sense of urgency before COVID-19? The executive leadership team and the focus on actually making change happen. Just a little bit of background. So I got fed up with people saying banks are dumb and stupid and would be destroyed and disrupted by technology and fintech because that's easy to say and I've heard it all my life, but it actually doesn't happen in reality because banks are a completely different industry to almost every other because of the ties between the banks and the economy and government and regulation, therefore. But what is happening is that banks are fundamentally challenged by technology because they're built for a physical structure, which goes back to what we were just saying about the pandemic. And they haven't built their organisations for digital structures, although that's what they'll be doing post-pandemic. But some were well down the road pre-pandemic. And what separated them is I wrote down a list of five of the top 50 banks by market capitalization I, as an external observer, felt were doing digital quite well because they were making regular announcements about what they were doing with technology. And luckily, all five said that they would agree to be part of the book project, which is both a mixture of primary and secondary research. The five banks being JP Morgan Chase, BBVA, ING, DBS in Singapore, and China Emergence Bank. And what separates those five from the other 45 in the top 50 by market cap is that I could see there was a genuine commitment to technology and becoming a technology-first, digitally-enabled organization. And the reason I could see that is that if you look at BBVA, they've been doing this for 20 years, driven by their leader, Francisco Gonzalez, who's now retired. If you look at ING, they had ING Direct. They've been running banking operations, technology-first, digitally-remote for decades. DBS were winning all the awards um, from around the world for being the best digital bank in the world. And I could see they were doing seriously committed changes in the last 10 years in the bank. 
China Merchants Bank also was winning our awards all over Asia for being one of the best banks technologically, uh, which isn't surprising as they were only launched in 1987, but now are one of the biggest banks in China. And JP Morgan Chase, some may say, why did I pick them? And the main reason is because almost every day uh, for the last, I don't know, couple of years, I've been seeing announcements about what they're doing in investing in digital transformation. And it started six years ago when Jamie Dimon started the rallying call saying that Silicon Valley is coming to eat our lunch. And he didn't want that to happen. And he's a visionary guy. I mean, you may say he's a billionaire banker, but at the end of the day, he has vision. And the vision part of this is really what separates a lot of these organizations. I mean, all the organizations you mentioned, their leadership believed and put their belief in motion around digital. And what's interesting about that, with the things you brought up in your book, those leaders really are in a position today to do things differently and respond and react because the consumer is being forced into digital channels. All of the uh, solutions need to be delivered digitally, be it a you know a new account opening or a, a loan application. They're not, they're not saying come on into the branch and fill out an application because there's no branches. Do you foresee, based on what's going on right now, do you foresee a greater trend toward partnering with fintech organizations for them potentially to get up to speed on both the innovation and digital transformation process? Or do you do you maybe even see it already happening today? I talk quite a lot um, when I'm presenting. Uh, and again, this is one of the areas specifically in the book about partnering. And fintech, I think, is going through five phases. The first phase was when post the global financial crisis, early 2010s, we saw all these startups beginning and all of them saying, we're going to destroy banks. You know, banks are rubbish. They're useless. Come join us and join our rallying call. Then the second phase was mid 2010s when the bank said, uh, all these fintechs are starting to get a bit annoying. Let's find out what they're doing by running hackathons and doing innovation theater and giving some awards for an API that links to our data, but won't actually give our data away. The third phase then is around about now, where uh, certainly for the past 18 months, I'm hearing most banks talking about co-creation, collaboration, but it's not quite there in that um, if you talk to several of the fintechs that the banks are supposedly partnering with, their view is that the banks are trying to look under the hood at what they're doing and then steal the idea and not actually really commit to partnering with them. And so I think in the next few years, we'll see a lot more commitment towards full partnership integration of fintechs into bank operations. And one of the things I say regularly is, you know, 12,000 companies doing one thing brilliantly well will always beat one company doing 12,000 things because they're focused and specialized. And at the end of this decade, the fifth phase will be that we won't even talk about fintech anymore. It'll just be an ecosystem of lots of partnerships with lots of companies that the bank brings to the customer as value delivery. And the bank acts far more as an aggregator of these 12,000 companies rather than as a competitor with them. So as part of this process, you know, we've always kidded about the fact that organizations continue to build a patchwork solution to digital. They wouldn't maybe fix it from the inside out, from the foundation um, outward to the customer. Do you see most organizations coming out of this crisis really looking at digital differently and not looking for those what I'll call simple patchwork solutions? Or do you see maybe two different sets? The ones that had never made the first move saying, I need something so patchwork is going to work. 
but for most organizations that had made at least some movements, realizing the patchwork now is completely broken. I mean, I, I use the example, obviously, about the new account opening process where people said 70% of organizations said they can open accounts digitally. And then in our survey, we two questions later asked, do you make the customer come in? And 70% of those said yes. And, and you realize now the definition of digital really gets a call to action here and saying, you know what, that's not digital. No, it's to the heart of what I talk about and write about, uh, and as do you, in that um, when we're looking at digital, it's actually a business model built for the distribution of finance through software and servers and a global network, not a distribution of paper through a local network of buildings and humans. And what that demands is a completely different business model and structure to the traditional industrial revolution model of finance and banking. Uh, And most executives in most banks are still trying to add digital as lipstick on a pig or an evolution of what they've always done, rather than a fundamental revolution of thinking and change of the business model and culture and mindset. And that goes to the heart of doing digital transformation lessons from leaders, which is when you actually get under the skin of some of these guys, you find all of them have an executive leadership team, a chief executive and a chairman completely committed to the change of the business to be fully digital at the core of the business, rather than adding technology around what is already there. It's not easy to do, and it's taking a long time. I mean, I'm talking you know, five to 10 year processes here, not five to 10 month processes. But the fact they're committed to doing that means that they're far further ahead than 95% of banks that I talk to that are just trying to say, well, digital, yeah, we've got a chief digital officer and we've given him a budget and there's a project going on and we're developing an app, which is the attitude of those who don't get this big change. And I think you on the financial brand ran something around that theme with some research saying that, was it 14% of businesses surveyed feel that they're actually doing digital? Yeah. I would say that's far higher than those that really are. I'd put it down more at about 5% or less. It gets down to the definition, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's scary. Doing digital as a project, adding it as a technology on top of the old business. Some people call that digital. I call that just a waste of money. Now, out of the COVID crisis, not just the economic impact, but do you see financial institutions actually failing or having to merge with others? because of the digital concept, the fact that they just aren't ready technology-wise to move forward and they now realize that's not an an option any longer? I'm not sure whether we'll see institutions failing because of the COVID crisis because the Fed and the Treasury are bailing everyone out. Um, But what we will see is some institutions struggling with reputation um, because there's a big reputational hit right now, going back to what we were saying before around the customer can't actually get hold of anybody and they're in crisis. You know, Some people only had a, a week's worth of money in the banks or in the savings. You know, what can they do if there's no one to talk to, if there's no one there to t- pick up the phone? So there'll be a big reputational hit for sure. And equally in the US, it's, it's a little bit different to the rest of the world in that you've seen this massive spike in unemployment claim going through. And I haven't seen the latest numbers, but I saw last week it was 6 million. The week before it was 3.3 million. The week before that was just 600,000. So this massive spike shows the desperation, both of small businesses and individuals. And if the bank wasn't there to be there for them in that hour of gloom, then post-pandemic, I think we're going to see a lot of people saying the banks that were there for us will get the uplift and the banks that weren't there for us will see people leave. Do you think you're going to see possibly more switching going on post-pandemic where when you, it's easier to close accounts. But do you see people actually 
finally using their footsteps to say, you know what, you were there when I was depositing money. You, you were more than willing to take it. But when it came to the f- point that I needed a loan or as a small business person, I just need somebody to return my phone call. You know what, I'm going to remember that. Yeah, and I use an example regularly um, to give the contrast between the challenger banks and digital banks and the traditional banks with the incumbents mindset, which was a story in America, actually, just before Christmas, where the fact that you guys still use something called a check, which is unheard of outside America these days, the customer deposited their paycheck on December the 20th. And on December 24th was trying to get home. They were at a gas station and the check wasn't cleared. So they couldn't actually pay for the gas in the vehicle. Uh, and equally, the guy had two kids in the car, eight and 10 years old, and couldn't get their presents. And was calling the call center of the bank in desperation. And amazingly, the contact center representative that he engaged with uh, asked her boss whether it was okay at lunchtime for her to go and meet the guy and give him some money so at least he could pay for the gas. And her boss said yes. So in a lunch break, she drove voluntarily to meet the guy. It was only like six miles away from where the call center was and gave him 20 bucks and came back to the office. And they were both sacked after Christmas, her and her boss, because the bank's strict rules is that no call center or uh, contact center uh, operator can meet a customer physically. And that is really traditional mindset thinking. What I see happening right now, and this is to the crisis, is that the banks that are not just new or old, but the ones that actually understand customer experience and customer journey. And that's how digital banks and fintech banks design themselves. They start with what's the user experience, what's the customer experience, how can we engage with them both digitally and physically if needed? And how do we support them if they're in a desperate moment of need are the ones that will get the reputational uplift. And I think there will be a lot of people who will switch to them because their friends will be saying, well, I know you had your bank not being able to deal with you for a month. Mine was there for me. So based on the findings in your book, what do you think is the biggest challenge that will be faced by digital transformation, fast followers and laggards versus those that actually are ready to go? What's the biggest challenge? The biggest challenge is actually getting a executive leadership team who understand what digital is and technology first means. And that most banks, that when I meet the executive team, there's people who have a great background in risk, compliance, audit, regulation, credit, investment markets, et cetera, et cetera. But how many of them actually have any background in technology and telecommunications? When you look at BBVA, and this surprised me, their executive leadership team, uh, 50%, in fact, more than half of their executive team have a background in technology and telecommunications. The chairman and chief executive have a technology and telecommunications background. They have a not just a CIO on the executive leadership team, but a chief of data and a chief of customer experience and a chief of engineering and design and development. Within DBS, what amazed me is that they have a flat organization of lots of small teams And in those teams are all of the financial compliance regulatory people sitting side by side, co-creating with designers and developers. Technology is not separated from the business, it is the business. And they they actually say that, technology is business, business is technology. So they have designers and developers sitting in small 10 people teams with audit and regulation and compliance and credit and risk and treasury people side by side, all working together, designing and developing ideas. It's a completely different structure of thinking of culture, of organization, of business model. And that's the biggest challenge. Can you get an executive decision maker who can actually commit to changing the complete structure of the bank that fundamentally? Well, it's interesting because you've been to China. I I was able to go in January early and 
I think that's one of the major things that I noticed right away is that the organizations I visited, every one of them had a massive number of technology people, digital people, and R&D. And the people to run the bank were a very small component. Now, mind you, these are all digital organizations, but it's the same way that Marcus is being built in the U.S. You know, you look at the, the organization, it's all digital and R&D people. That's the only people they're looking for. The running of a bank, if you don't have branches in the old school operations and policies, is really not that hard. It's the culture that's difficult. Yeah, I mean, what you just touched on is actually, and also it's a, a tracker of institutions that understand digital and digital change and that. You know, 50,000 of J.P. Morgan Chase's 250,000 people are engineers. So 20% of the workforce is in technology. I think in Goldman Sachs these days, it's nearing 30%. In Ant Financial in China, it's 65%. In Google, it's going to be up there at 70%. These are the sort of statistics that are turning. So what used to be 80% bankers, 20% technologists, will probably by the end of this decade be 80% technologists and 20% bankers. Right, right. And... They're going to be wearing both hats, but the importance of them are, are going to certainly switch. Finally, coming out of this health crisis and, and as people start to get back to whatever the new normal is going to be, do you foresee that consumers will go back to the way they did banking before? Or is this really the tipping point that really has been needed to make people aware of the simplicity, the seamless operations, the way that digital can be done? I think a bit like after the global financial crisis, there'll be a new normal. But the new normal will be everybody fundamentally challenging what life is, because we're spending time at home philosophizing, some of us, and wondering, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of work? What is the meaning of money? Why did I jump on all those flights all the time and stay away from my kids? You know, I'm having a month where I'm being paid to take time at home and I'm enjoying the fact that for the first time I'm actually talking to my children and getting my relationship back with my partner. I think a lot of people will be saying then, you know, if suddenly the whole world paused and government bailed out the people and money became meaningless, post-pandemic, I'm going to be asking, well, what is meaningful? What is my life about? And it's not about flying around the world anymore, even though you and I and many of us did that all the time because it was fun. It's more about prioritizing what's key to the way you live. And that's not money. Especially when we're looking at the fact that the one non-negotiable is time. Yeah. So, you know, I was I was talking to somebody yesterday. I said, so what's going to happen when my uh, 85-year-old father decides, you know what? I'm getting enough social now, so I don't have to go to the branch for social. And in fact, if I want to talk to the branch manager, I want to use either Zoom or FaceTime. And then the branch comes back and goes, oh, but by the way, we can't, we're not authorized to use outside programs at all. Therefore, you have to come to the branch. And and he'll be questioning his own mind. Wait, that just doesn't make sense. No, and that's going back to the new normal. I, I always remember I was doing workshops with some of the biggest banks in the world at the end of the last decade. the decade before last actually end of the 2000s and um, I had to explain Facebook to them and Twitter to them and social media because they had no experience or knowledge of what it was and how to use it in some cases that's still the same but it's improved at least they've heard of it now but um, the fact we're all using Zoom Google Hangouts Microsoft Teams you know we're all connecting globally online it will create a very different way in which people look at work life and experience By the way, congratulations on your new book. I know it's now available on Amazon. How else do people follow you? Well, Jim, it's always good to connect with you. And, 
you know, basically like yourself, uh, I'm pretty easy to find online. So thefinancer.com is my blog every day. ChrisSkinner.global is another website that shows you a bit about me. Uh, I also actually have the fintechguy.com and the troublemaker.com, just because that's my other handles. But most people find me these days probably through Twitter, Chris underline Skinner. Chris, as always, thank you. Again, congratulations on your new book. By the way, it, it is is a very good read. It's unique in that, you know, if organizations feel like they need to have case studies to justify investment in digital. Chris has, has talked to all the banks that you really need to connect with and need to take guidance from because they are doing it right. And uh, we are now in a crisis that we didn't foresee three weeks, four weeks ago. And we're in a situation that it no longer is going to be acceptable to say, oh, geez, I believe in doing digital or I believe in good customer experience. Those are intertwined and you're not going to be able to fake it anymore. It, you're going to be caught. Just one final thought on that one, Jim, is um, it was quite interesting with the book because I realized after it was done that I spent all my life in business transformation and technology. And so the fact that I was bringing that experience to those interviews, I think, teases out a lot of interesting lessons from these leaders that some are blindingly obvious, but I'd say there's at least five in there that I didn't know were going to turn up before I had the interviews. So it's a mixture of a whole life experience of business transformation and technology mixed with the interviews with five major banks that you should be listening to. Well, and, and we said, it's not like a checklist of seven things you have to do, because when the first one's culture, that's most important, but it's probably the one people are going to avoid the most too, because they can't necessarily change their top management. Top management and the board both have to change. Thank you again, Chris. I appreciate you being on the show today. Cheers, Jim. Boy, that was an interesting talk with Chris Skinner. Um, it's amazing. It was just four months ago that we had a discussion about digital banking and the, a little preview of this book. So much has happened in that short amount of time, not just across the world on the health basis, but obviously with banking. Chris provided a lot of interesting insights into what he has seen now going on and how banks are going to have to come out of this COVID crisis with a renewed energy around digital transformation. Those organizations that continue to lag, that continue to not see the light on what is needed to truly take a new culture and new leadership position with regard to digital transformation will not be able to serve the customer. And the customer, more than ever before, will be aware of what can be done and may very likely leave the organizations they have built loyalty with over the year. At the end, organizations have to realize that loyalty is built over time and is usually tested at times like these, if organizations do not respond accordingly, if they're not there when the customer needs them, customers will leave. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, just rated a top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lawnbreak and audio engineer, Sean Rowe Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.
You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.